This week, I am preaching something that is, uh, it's harder for me to preach. And I'll tell you why it's harder for me to preach. <clears throat> uh, there, are, there are passages that I come across that are challenging for me. And there are really two ways that they're challenging. One is that I'm pressed by the fact that there are experts who disagree on this passage, and I'm not sure what to do with that all the time. Um, I, I trust the people who have worked hard and know the Greek well. and know the, So I look at that and I wrestle with that. I try to be honest with you if I come across something that I'm not sure what to think of that and give you both options. But um, there's another thing that causes, gives me pause, and that is the fact that I might be a hypocrite by what I'm preaching. And that happens every time that I come across something that I feel like I'm preaching as much or more to myself than I am to you. This is one of those passages. This is one of those passages where we're going to see evangelism at work, and I have not ever really considered myself an evangelist. I have struggled, struggled with evangelism. So today, I am preaching to myself, and I just want to testify to that, and I'll begin the sermon with a story. Um, I was doing uh, a ministry uh, with high schoolers at Village Church of Barrington. We had this back-to-school retreat. 100, 125 kids would go. And my job was to give the talks and to do the climbs. And uh, by do the climbs meant I brought my ropes and I would set up the ropes early in the morning. It meant that I was getting up really early and I was staying up late. So I would get up early, like before dawn, and some of the guys and girls would go up with me, usually college kids or young adults would go up with me, help set the climbs. We would spend time in the Word of God up there on the, on the climbs and kind of hold our spot while 75 or so kids would come up to climb. Not all of them liked to climb. The others were hanging out with Mark playing a game, and uh, he had always a huge group around him. Um, but we had a ton of fun on those trips. And then we'd get back down and we'd eat dinner, and it was my job to give the talk and then hang out with the kids after. Well, there was a day where we had rain and we couldn't go up and climb. So we decided we're gonna to go to the mall. This is my moment where I don't have a job. My job is to just drive the kids to the mall and I can sit in the van and sleep and I needed some sleep. So I get there and I open the door and I'm letting the kids out and I am off duty. You ever felt off duty like it's not your job right now, you're, you're taking a break? I am off duty and I'm helping the kids out, I'm being polite, but I'm like, if I'm, you're looking at my heart, it's like, get in, leave me alone, give me a little time here. One of the last kids to get out is a, is a young lady who was new to our church, new to the group, and she says to me as I'm holding her hand and helping her out, I want to find Jesus. Would you help me come into a relationship with Jesus? Well, I am not ready for the question. And I grabbed my Bible, which had my notes for the, the, the talk that night in them, and I dropped my Bible, and notes fell on the ground, and I'm on my knees picking up my notes, and she says, well, maybe later, and walks on. Do you know how guilty I felt all day long? Now, she came to Christ later that night, but I felt like you're supposed to be ready to give the gospel at every turn. I have, as, I have tons of stories in my life where I have found myself not ready, not saying what should be said, not give, taking the opportunity to speak the truth. Paul, in this case, speaks the truth of the gospel in a very difficult situation, 
and stands as our model for how we are to be in this world, how we are to be with our family, with our friends, with neighbors. So if you turn with me to Acts 26, it is two years has uh, transpired since last week's sermon. He has been in Caesarea. He's been in prison. He's been preaching. Uh, he's been teaching. He's been able to receive people. He's been able to write. He's been able to do some ministry, but nonetheless, he's been in prison. And now there's a changing of the guard, and, and uh, he is going to give an account before King Agrippa and before the one who is taking Felix's place, uh, Festus. So he is going to give an account before Portius Festus and King Agrippa. And we pick up the story in Acts 26 with Paul making his defense. So the guard has changed. They've come together, and they want to hear what Paul has to say. They're expecting Paul to defend himself, to fight for himself. They're expecting Paul to come up and say why he isn't guilty of the charges that have been keeping him in prison for two years. At the same time, there has been a uh, new charge from Jerusalem to come and kill Paul. And they want to bring him back to Jerusalem, and he has uh, appealed to Caesar which in essence means I'm not going to go that direction because I'm a citizen. I have the right to go to Rome and make my case before a Roman court. And that's what he's just done. Now that that's been done, Paul has a chance to give his defense. So that's where we pick it up. And in this passage, we are going to see that, um, excuse me, that we should tell people about Jesus, that we should prioritize talking about Jesus, that we should personalize talking about Jesus, and we should be persuasive talking about Jesus. So let's read just these first eight verses of chapter 26. So Agrippa said to Paul, you have permission to speak for yourself. So here they are in this hall where these dignitaries are sit, are, have brought Paul in before them, and they're giving him a chance to defend himself. Why have you been in prison for the last two years? King Agrippa was the king who reigned over the northern part of uh, Israel. He was Jewish, and, uh, and he also had control over the temple to some degree and the picking of the high priests. Then Paul stretched out his hand and made his defense. Paul stretched out his hand. He was an orator. He had been trained as an orator. And he begins by saying, I consider myself fortunate that it is before you, King Agrippa, that I am to make my defense today against all the accusations of the Jews. He understands why he's here. He's here to defend himself against the accusations that he's defiled the temple, that he has stood against Jewish people, that he stands against Moses and the law and the prophets and that he's preaching heresy. These are the things that they're saying of Paul and that he's causing disturbances. This is what he's expected to give a defense against. So he says, I'm glad that it's before you, King Agrippa, that I'm going to make my defense. In verse 3, it says, especially because you are familiar with all the customs and controversies of the Jews. We ourselves are not even though we've studied the Bible, even though we've heard sermons, many of us have heard sermons our whole lives, we still are not familiar with the customs and what is really going on in the day. But King Agrippa is. He understands the controversies over the Sabbath and over 
Pentecost and over how you, whether you should be in Jerusalem or whether you can go to a synagogue and all of the things that are culturally relevant, he understands that King Agrippa knows that. It's in the context of that that he wants to make his defense. He understands that there's both a Jewish judge and there's a Roman judge that's listening to him right now. So he's glad that there's someone that understands the customs and controversies of the Jews. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. Pay attention to what I'm about to say. I'm about to say something important. I want you to listen. And what he goes on to do from here is to talk about Jesus, not defend himself. He takes this opportunity, as he does with most opportunities, to use it to talk about his Savior and to try to compel them to become saved. He begins in verse 4 by saying, My manner of life from my youth, spent from the beginning among my own nation in Jerusalem, is known by all the Jews. Now maybe here he's talking about the Jews that are making the accusations against him that have come to Caesarea. Maybe he's saying, these Jewish guys know who I am. I grew up in Jerusalem. I grew up in the schools. I was prominent. He wants them to know that he considers himself Jewish from his roots. And as a pause here, I want you to know that some people have used the scriptures for anti-Semitism. Some people have used it to hate Jewish people. They're saying, look, it's the Jews that crucified Jesus. Jesus was Jewish. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, really, it came from Jacob. That was the beginning of the Israel nation. But the promises are rooted in Judaism. And our story is written in Judaism, and Jesus himself is Jewish. Paul is Jewish. He's not speaking against the Jews. He's speaking against the Jewish leaders that are making an accusation against those who are preaching Christ. Verse 5, they have known for a long time, if they are willing to testify, that according to the strictest party of our religion, I have lived as a Pharisee. I grew up as a Pharisee. I, I sided with the Pharisees. I did my best to follow the law. I knew the scriptures, and I know them still. In verse 6, it says, And now I stand here on trial because of my hope in the promise made by God to our fathers, to which our tri 12 tribes hope to attain as they earnestly worship day and night. And for this hope, I am accused by Jews, O king. Why it is thought incredible by any of you that God raises the dead. He's talking about raising the dead. Now, if you are sitting with Paul before he comes to make his defense, his life is on the line. He is going to go to Rome. He's appealed to Rome. He's appealed to Caesar, but he can, he's going to get on a boat and go to Rome. But how it goes for him is still declared by these guys, this king and this person who's in charge in Caesarea in, for Romans. These guys have power over him. And Paul goes right to the gospel. He goes right to the resurrection. I want you to know why I keep talking about Jesus. Why it's a priority for me. Why I'm going to use this opportunity to talk about Jesus. And maybe if you were his counselor, and maybe if you were his friend, you would have said, Paul, take it easy. Stop putting yourself at risk. You already have a bunch of 
bunch of people that want to kill you. Stop with you're Jewish and we're a Pharisee. Don't go on to the resurrection. But Paul can't wait to get to the resurrection. Why should we prioritize talking about Jesus? Because we are talking about the fact that God raises the dead. And the difference for those who know Jesus and don't know Jesus has everything to do with how that end story is going to turn out. Everybody that's listening to my voice today will go one of two ways in the resurrection. And Paul, being convinced of that, wasn't concerned about his earthly life as, he much, as much as he was about the eternal future of the people that were listening to him. He would gladly give up his life so that others could live for eternity. Talk about prioritizing talking about Jesus. Now, I have a good relationship with my neighbors. We mow each other's lawns. We shovel each other's driveways. They know I'm a Christian. They hear when Bible study's over. They ask me to pray for them. But have I prioritized talking about Jesus? I'm still praying for the time that they walk over to my door, knock on the door and say, Todd, would you help us come to Christ? I would gladly do that. That is in line with my Norwegian roots. I don't like to invade people's spaces and make them uncomfortable. It makes me uncomfortable. I need to prioritize talking about Jesus if I love my neighbors. And so do you. We need to prioritize talking about Jesus because we're talking about the fact that God raises the dead. And this is the difference of how it turns out for our neighbors and friends. What they decide to do with Jesus. We should prioritize talking about Jesus. We should personalize talking about Jesus. Verses 9 through 18. I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth. Paul begins to tell his story. Before he was a Christian, as a young man, he believed that his job was to oppose Jesus of Nazareth. That means he started from a position of opposition. He started from a position where he would have actually been against Paul. He's saying that I used to be on the side where I would have been trying to kill me for preaching Jesus. I was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth. Notice also that he has personalized it with Jesus. This isn't just opposing people who believe in Jesus. For him, this is now personal. It was opposing Jesus. In verse 10, And I did so in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priests, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. And I punished them often in all the synagogues and tried to make them blaspheme. And in raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. Paul was ambitious in his campaign against Christians and against Jesus. Why is he telling this story? He's telling this story because he wants them to know that there was a conversion experience. There was a moment where he chose to follow Jesus. In fact, where Jesus chose to choose him. 
that changed everything. And he wants the people who are listening to hear that. Our personal testimonies are important. I had a friend who was an electrician who came to Christ. And uh, he lived a very nasty life before he came to Christ. And early on in his faith, he came to me and he said, Todd, I have a great testimony. And he went on to tell me about his sins. And I want you to know that as I've gotten older, this was kind of testified about last week in the baptismal service, as I've gotten older, my favorite testimony is where where there's less sin. Where people are saved young and are saved from the difficulties of life. Oh, praise God for being raised in a Christian home and being kept from all of the pain and suffering. Yes, it's wonderful that people are saved out of addiction and brokenness and broken families and all of that. Like God just redeems. And that's wonderful. And we need to tell those stories. But I don't want any of you to be embarrassed about a story that is, I was young and began to walk with God. And he saved me from what I saw other people struggle with. I have a story of a healthy relationship with my wife. It is born from parents who had healthy relationships with their wives, which was born with grandparents that had healthy relationships with their wives. And I thank God for that and pray for it for my children. Paul is telling his story, and he's telling his story that I want you to know that I was as far from Christian as you can imagine. I was fighting against Christians. But let me tell you what God did. We should personalize talking about Jesus, partly because if we want to connect, especially today with our neighbors and with our friends, the people who are living this life, it is compelling when we tell them how it's changed our lives. It is a miracle that cannot be denied. One of my favorite stories is when a a child chooses Christ and goes home to their parents and they see the change in their child. That junior high boy stops acting like a junior high boy and starts acting like a junior high Christian. And they come to Christ because they see the radical change in their child. That's awesome. When we let people see the story that God is doing in us. In fact, the truth is maybe the next time I preach about evangelism, I might get up and tell you, look what God's done. Even though today I'm telling you I've got a long way to go. In verse 12, in this connection, I journeyed to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priests at midday, O king, He's making his point now. He's talking right to the king. He's not talking about his defense. He's trying to save the king. At midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven brighter than the sun that shone around me and those who journeyed with me. And when we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. Paul has this miraculous experience on his way to do wrong. How does God save? How does God interrupt us? Right in the middle of our failure. Right in the middle of our sin. And he speaks. And and what is that sin actually? It is, David said it. It is against you and you only have I sinned. 
Now, he sinned against others in that when he wrote that. But when he wrote that, he understood that primarily I am fighting against God when I sin. And in this sin specifically, Jesus says, you're killing Christians, but don't you know that you're fighting against me? And then he uses this phrase, it's hard for you to kick against the goads. That's something that doesn't mean a whole lot to us today, but in that day it meant a lot. It's a pointy stick that they used to prod their oxen. And sometimes the oxen would get annoyed and would kick back on that pointy stick called a goad. And when the ox moved with the, the prodding the stick, they got prodded less and it was less pokey. But if they kicked, they kicked right into the stick usually. And that's when they would really experience pain. And there are some who are fighting a relationship with Jesus and they're kicking against Jesus and they're running hard against Jesus. And that's how God sees it. You're running from me. You're keeping your distance from me. And when you kick against what I'm doing, it, you're only hurting yourself worse. It is hard for you to kick against the goads. Verse 15, and I said, who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and stand up upon your feet. This reminds me of Ezekiel 2, verses 1 through 4, where God commanded Ezekiel to stand and then filled him with the Spirit and stood him up on his feet. Paul is with the others, knocked to the ground by the glory of God and the light that's shown, and now he's commanded to stand to receive his commission. Remember again the, I'm not going to say the bravery or the courage of Paul nearly so much as the fact that Paul is in the power of the Spirit as he makes his defense or offense because he's actually trying to win these rulers. He also personalizes it again. The Lord Jesus makes it personal. I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. But rise and stand up upon your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to point you as a servant and witness to the things in delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you. Paul is getting his commission. Paul is being saved. Paul is being chosen. God is doing a new work in Paul. And for all of us who say that we're believers in Jesus Christ, all of us have experienced this. All of us have experienced this moment, at, whether young or old, where we gave our lives to Jesus Christ and we received our commission. You are now mine. You're not your own. You don't get to live your life however you care to. You are now my servant. Don't call me Lord, Lord, unless you do what I say. The expectation is, is that we will serve him now, we will live our lives for him, and we will continue the work that he's doing. Now, I could argue that my gift as a pastor is shepherding. I love people. I love building healthy culture. I'm not terribly fond of being overly abrasive. I like 
joking with guys and I like sarcasm with the guys and I like, I like being together as a family and I like building healthy family. Maybe I could say we need to just hire a pastor of evangelism because Todd's never going to be really great at it. I don't buy that. I don't think I get off the hook that easily. I don't think you do either. I, what, Lord, it makes me uncomfortable. I'm guessing Paul was uncomfortable in this meeting. I'm guessing he was risking a lot. Lord, I'm risking a lot talking to my neighbors. What if they don't like me? Now they like me. What if I invite them into a Bible study, which I'm praying that that door opens? What if I invite them into a Bible study and they come and they reject me? Paul told Timothy, who I'm guessing wasn't an evangelist by gift, in 2 Timothy 4, do the work of an evangelist. That means that's our job. There are some of us here that are really gifted at it. There's some of us that are jump into a conversation. I, and I could name them. I have uh, been to Africa with a friend of mine and watched her turn conversation after conversation to Jesus. And I'm sitting over there thinking, I thought we were talking about agriculture. And the next thing you know, she's talking about Jesus. And I'm over there feeling like, hey, I'm the pastor and we're talking about agriculture right now. Or I can get on board. Verse 18 is really important to the sermon. This is the why we need to prioritize, personalize, and be persuasive. Look in verse 18. In order to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. This is what God is trying to do in this world. You may be wondering, with all that's going on in this world, what in the world is God doing? What God is doing, he is waiting for more people to come to faith. He is waiting for more people to come to the church. He is waiting for the church to rise up and tell their neighbors about Jesus. Now, God doesn't need us. I'm, not, I'm convinced that there isn't going to be that guilt of, wow, there's people who aren't in heaven because I didn't talk to them. No, God's going to get the people to heaven that he wants in heaven. He's really big. But he called us to be part of that process. He called me to be part of that process. And I need to re keep remembering that the goal is that my friends, family, neighbors, and workmates need to open their eyes because they're blind. They need to turn from darkness to light because the power of Satan re reigns in darkness. Colossians said it this way, that he has transferred us from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of his beloved son. That's what happens when we're saved. And when we're transferred into the kingdom of his beloved son, there is light and goodness and joy and peace. And yes, we aren't perfect when we do that, but 
The reality is, is when we step out in faith and do what God's called us to do, he gives us more of his spirit and we become more like Christ. This is about forgiveness of sins. This is about that moment when the resurrection happens, what will happen with our friends and family. And Christ has invited us to tell people personally and to prioritize about it. That means that with a sense of urgency, I need to work at not just trying to manipulate a conversation, but care like people's lives depend on it. Think of Paul in Colossians 4 praying, asking people to pray that God would open a door for the gospel. I like doors. I like the door to be opened, and I like it to be pretty easy when I tell people about Jesus. I want, I'm all right with telling them about what I think, but this next thing, being persuasive when I talk about Jesus, is the hardest part. Everybody at work knew I was a Christian. As I've gone back into construction, everybody at work knew that I was a pastor. They can see my sermons online. Everybody at work is holding me to a higher level and change their language a little bit when they talk to me. Not all. Well, some of them don't give me that courtesy. But there is a gap between knowing that you're a believer and encouraging those friends of mine to put their trust in Jesus Christ. And to be honest with you, that's been the challenge of my whole adult life. We should be persuasive talking about Jesus. Here in verse 19, Therefore, O King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision, but declared first to those in Damascus, he started talking about Jesus right there in Damascus, then in Jerusalem and throughout the region of Judea, also to the Gentiles, that they should repent and turn to God. Don't you know that here in the 21st century we're not supposed to say repent and talk about sin? If you want a lot of people to come to your church, we've got to do a better job than that. Don't make people uncomfortable. If we're not talking about repentance and forgiveness of sins, folks, what are we doing here? That's how people get saved. And of course it's offensive. It was offensive then and it's offensive now. Verse 21, For this reason the Jews seized me in the temple and tried to kill me. It is for Christ, it is for my aspiration that they would become saved that they seized me and tried to kill me. That's why I'm here. To this day, I have had the help that comes from God, and so I stand here to testify both to small and great, saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass. I love this moment. Paul has been talking to the king, making his case, but it's as if he looks around the room now to small and great, and he speaks to the small first. Hey, soldiers over there. Hey, servants over there that are waiting to just do what... I'm inviting you into this conversation. I want you to know about Jesus. I don't want anybody to miss this. I'm not just trying to give an opportunity for King Herod to be saved and for King Agrippa to be saved. I testify to the great and the small, all of you, that Jesus is risen. 
In verse 24, and he was saying these things in his defense, Festus said with a loud voice, Paul, you are out of your mind with great learning. It's driving you out of your mind. He says it with a loud voice as if to shut Paul up. Dude, you're nuts. You think Jesus rose from the dead? Do you think that hurt him? You think he was made of steel or something and he wasn't afraid, he wasn't anxious, he was different than you and me? Verse 25, Paul said, I am not out of my mind, most excellent Festus, but I am speaking true and rational words. And then he looked to the king, who was Jewish, for the king knows about these things, and to him I speak boldly, for I am persuaded that none of these things have escaped his notice, for this has not been done in a corner. Now Herod Agrippa, this king, King Agrippa II, is the one that he's speaking to. King Agrippa I was there when, when Jesus was killed. This isn't a new story. And he's saying, and this is good for us to hear, he's saying out loud that Jesus didn't rise from the dead in private. He rose from the dead and it can be verified. You can go and talk to the soldiers who were with me on the road to Damascus and you can hear the story of the light. You can go into Jerusalem and you can hear the story. In fact, King Agrippa can tell you the stories of Jesus, what kind of man he was. He knows the stories. And the church started not in private, but in public. This is not something new. I am telling you something that can be verified if you'll take the time to verify it. And the facts are, we can talk to our neighbors and friends and tell them, this has radically changed my marriage and my life and my family and my, the kind of neighbor that I am. Todd, why do you mow my neighbor? Why do you mow the neighbor's yard? Because I'm a Christian and I want them to know the love of Jesus. That's the truth. I'm not doing it because I love mowing grass. And I'm not doing it so that they'll like me and think highly of me. Doing it that God would open a door. In verse 28, Agrippa said to Paul, in a short time, would you persuade me to be a Christian? That's a great question. In a short time, do you think that you're going to make me Christian? And Paul said, whether short or long, I would to God that not only you, but also all who hear me this day might become such as I am, except for these chains. I love that line too. I don't want you to have to suffer like me, but I wish that all of you were Christian. And by the way, if you become a Christian, King, King Agrippa, it won't be any different whether you're becoming a king or that servant over there that you haven't even noticed and don't know his name. The one that you said boy to. That one will come in and receive 
all of the gifts from God just like you will. Whether small or great, whether short or long, I would to God that not only you, but also all who hear me this day might become such as I am, except for these chains. Then the king rose and the governor and Bernice and those who were sitting with them. And when they had withdrawn, they said to one another, this man is doing nothing to deserve death or imprisonment. And Agrippa said to Festus, this man could have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. I get a kick out of that comment. They've been holding him there for two years, knowing he was innocent. And now when he appeals to Caesar, he's going, oh, by the way, you're, you're innocent, dude. You didn't, you're not guilty of what they claimed you did. But if you remember from last week, they kept him there hoping for a bribe and hoping to satisfy the political aspirations of the Jews or themselves before the Jews. We should be persuasive talking about Jesus. <clears throat> what do I mean by that? Well, there's a very specific thing that I struggle with. I talk to my friends, my coworkers about Jesus. I talk to family members about Jesus. People know that I'm a Christian. I can tell you the hardest thing for me is when I look, if I look at them and say, will you choose Jesus today? And the reality is, is that God opened doors for us in the school and the commitment for us is that we would join them in what they were doing, which is miraculous, and you'll hear about it next week in a video and see how the teachers have received it. And there's God's doing amazing things through that, both in the school that we've been working in and the schools that we're joining now. And I'm, I'm so excited about it. But the fact was, is our, our goal wasn't there to try to make people Christian. Our goal was to love them and invite them to church and lead them to Christ. And there's a rub in my spirit. I don't want to close doors or make it any less miraculous, but the rub in my spirit is that I don't want to get to the end of the story and have people from the school say, wow, those people at the Bridge Church are super nice. They're really good people. And they haven't had the opportunity to choose Christ. And the reality is, is we've got to figure out a way to bridge that gap. And we've tried. We did Alpha and invited teachers. I invited them all to come to Alpha. And we invited teachers to come to church. And we've invited my neighbors to do the same. And it is uncomfortable. And, and people have come to Christ through it. And I'm thankful for that. But I would say that the Bridge Church and the Bridge Church's pastor does not excel at evangelism. And I can tell you what I was praying on this morning as getting ready for the service. I was praying we'd repent of that. I do think that there are those who are gifted at evangelism, we should be thankful for them. I don't think that God gave me that gift. But I think he gave me the charge to do the work of an evangelist.
So as we go to prayer, the first thing I want to do, if you have not received Jesus Christ as your Savior, would you receive Jesus today? Would you make sure that you are part of those who are raised with Christ, raised in Christ, and your sins are forgiven? It is my deep desire that all of you, young and old, whether now or in a long time from now, all of you would receive Jesus Christ as your Savior while there's still time. Would you join me in prayer? Heavenly Father, thank you for generations of those who did the work of evangelists. 2,000 years of those who did the work of an evangelist because that's why we're here. Because of the work that you did through them and how you called us to Christ. Thank you for mothers who trained their children from a young age, young mothers and fathers. Thank you for schoolmates who invited others to church. Thank you for workmates who risked it and talked about Jesus and how whole generations were changed as you worked through that message, the good news of Christ. Father, I pray that you would do a new work in our church, in my heart, in our towns and in our country. And I pray that people would repent of their sin and turn to you in faith. In Jesus' name, amen.